Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discussion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 89, Buiti Binafi. Yes, that is Garifuna for hello. It is just a greeting in Garifuna. As you know, I'm an anger baby, kid of an immigrant, <laughs> and uh, I am Garifuna. So uh, I thought you said you were an anger baby. Oh, no, I'm an anger baby, y'all. <laughs> Nobody's going anywhere. <laughs> So thank you for listening. Uh, So Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. No, ma'am. I'm telling you, it's true. Just listen to Fruit Loops. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims, y'all, that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. 
Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. So, Ben, yes. who are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about Huang Yang, a Chinese serial killer convicted of murdering 17 teenage boys, although he is suspected of at least 25 murders between September 2000. 2001 and 2003. All right. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm good. And I, I think this would be a good time to mention that we're both going on vacation soon. That's why mm-hmm. I'm good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the end is near. <laughs> yes. So we'll be taking a break at the beginning of August. Um, I'm really looking forward to see, seeing my daughter and grandson. I know you are. I've been pretty much self-isolating since March, except for when I have to go into the office or the grocery store. And even then, I usually order and pick up my groceries. So mm. I am taking this chance, uh, but I just have to see my grandbaby. <laughs> I absolutely, <laughs> I to. totally understand. <laughs> I Look, I too am looking forward to our break. By the way, I must say, Beth, I miss seeing you in the office. Let me yeah, tell you something about Beth. Her <laughs> shoe game is on point. Her, she, she comes in almost every day with a new set of Toms and her nails every day are on fleek. Always a new nail design. I don't know how she does it. I don't know. I I do know how she does it, but I love I love to see it, folks. And I I truly miss it. Um, I miss seeing your beautiful face. And yeah, I miss seeing your beautiful face. Oh, and I don't know if you guys noticed from the podcast, Beth has a very distinct laugh. <laughs> one of the one of my goals, like I don't really have like a laugh counter, but one of my goals when we record the show is to get you to laugh as much as possible. And maybe uh, it'll be this one. <laughs> maybe I just I just miss your presence. Aww. So um, I'm lucky we get to do the show, but I too am looking forward to uh, a break. We are going to a cooler place for our vacation because old Whitey can't stand the heat. Yeah, he needs to get out the kitchen. Uh, so. <laughs> So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And also, uh, we are going to talk about the fact that we got shine in the New York Times, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now speaking of the shine, let's get into the listener letters we got. All right. Well, hello, angels. Hello. Oh, they just cut off. They did? They just came in, dropped the bag, and left. Oh, shit. Those <laughs> damn angels. You know what? It's because the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and they're just they're done like, with we're us. out. They're Here's done with us. Bag. You know what? Yeah. Here's your fucking bag. Uh, <laughs> see you in the next millennium. <laughs> oh, so we got a five-star review on itunes from meager newt Ooh. who said some of these reviews sound bitter as fuck don't they though <laughs> sometimes <laughs> i get not wanting to listen to rambling but your banter is so full of lessons besides wendy your voice is smexy and silky as fuck oh <laughs> my god thank you so much uh, where is that damn hip hop air horn? <laughs> 
oh my god that got me like goose pimples everywhere thank you so much <laughs> and scabriella via apple podcast said a couple of gals who love true crime as promised i love wendy's kind and firm racial education sharing her experiences as a black latina i also appreciate the slices of life from phoenix as i was born and raised in the 602 602 yeah <laughs> <laughs> and moved away a few years back. It's hard to describe Phoenix cult- Phoenix culture to people here in Chicago, but y'all really remind me of the best people back home. Aww. Thanks so much for the show. And thank you, Scabriella. Thank you, Scabriella. By the way, I love the name. Yeah, that's a great name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And finally, shout out to Phoebe Lett, who featured our podcast in an article in the New York Times. Look, Mom, I really (laughs) made something of myself. Yeah, yeah. No, it was literally we got we got the email from the New York Times and we, I was like waiting for Beth to be like, is this a scam? Because I was thinking it was a scam. <laughs> I always think everything's <laughs> yeah, a scam. Yeah, everything is a scam. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't. <laughs> and it is just such like an honor like that. Um, man two years ago we our friend, friends and family don't even know we do this show like we were thinking i was thinking like <laughs> should we quit our jobs should should i post this on my personal like for reals page like i made it y'all i'm out deuces man, <laughs> i don't need y'all anymore like i just pictured like my stance like setting my office on fire and just walking away like keanu reeves <laughs> And then I had to reel it back in. Yeah, <laughs> we're not this, making any money on that. Yeah, no, 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 no. This is definitely a labor beloved, a labor of love. And just thanks, Phoebe, let to um, seeing sort of what what we got going on. We are at the intersection of true crime and race. We were um, sort of honored amongst other true crimes in the same vein. We're looking at all these issues, crime, missing people, um, and and then also the issue of race. So we were really, really yeah. honored. Yeah. So check out that article and all the other podcasts that she uh, shouted out in that article. Yes, absolutely. So we also thank you all of our patrons and Patreons for your support. We got a new Podbean patron. Uh, her name is Rakita. And uh, here, Rakita D. So here is uh, your tune. Rakita do you love me? Are you riding? Saying you never ever leave from beside me. Cause I want you and I need you and I'm down for you always. Okay, <laughs> so uh, thank you, Rikita. And we got a handsome donation on the Cash App by Cynthia Hartley. I'm sorry, Miss Hartley. I am for real. Never meant to make your daughter cry. I apologize a trillion times. Me and Fruit Loops, we got a thing going on. You say it's puppy love. We say it's full grown. Hope that you feel this, feel this way forever. You can plan a pretty picnic, but you can't predict the weather. So, boom, another one. We ain't sorry, but please don't judge me. We thank you for your support. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so now we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. 
So this week, we'd like to introduce you to a podcast called Cases of Color. And that's right. Cases of Color is a true crime podcast solely focused on the missing and murdered BIPOC of the world that have gone unnoticed or have been killed under suspicious circumstances and swept under the rug. The host, Randy, is a Black woman dedicated to bringing these cases to light, and we hope that you can join her on that journey. Find episodes of Cases of Color on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Episodes drop bi-weekly, and soon you'll be able to support Cases of Color through Patreon. So give Cases of Color a listen. You won't regret it. And plus, she has a Mm. really beautiful voice. Yes, Milky. Yes. Silky. Yes. Buttery. Yes. All the things. So do it. (laughs) So we're back. So, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Huang Yang, a Chinese serial killer convicted of murdering 17 boys between September 2001 and 2003. Most of the victims were local high school students between 16 and 20 years of age. Now we're going to get into some stats. Where is the damn sound effect? (laughs) Okay. Huang Yang, a.k.a. the child killer. And by the way... Welcome to Culture Corner, y'all. Um, I don't know if anybody saw this week's episode or last week's episode of um, United Shades of America about this pyramid of or this iceberg of white supremacy. And th- at the tip of the iceberg is like the KKK and stuff. But at the bottom, it's like, well, I never own slaves. Or yeah. can I just call you? Can I just call you John since your name Ugh. is so difficult to pronounce? That is very racist. Uh, and I heard one podcast again. Beth and I go about um, our research a little bit differently, but I like to sort of familiarize myself with the story by maybe listening to a podcast or um, watching a YouTube video or listening to an audiobook and then diving into articles. And I heard on one podcast, the dude was like, can I just call him whatever name he chose? Uh, and I was like, uh, uh, like my, my, my racism, like, uh, like meter. bones were like, <laughs> yeah, my reader meter went through the roof. No, that's not that's his not name. Okay. It's, yeah. Yeah. No. And, and when we get to the victims names, we might butcher them and we apologize. But I think that these people's names are important and deserve our effort. We might butcher it, but we at least try. Yeah. We got to try. Right. right. Um, so take that and do whatever you want with it. So Wang Yang, aka the child killer or the teenage killer, was a Chinese serial killer. He had 17 to 25 victims and his murders and abductions occurred from 2001 to 2003 in Ping Pingyu County, Henan, China. Unfortunately, we do not know all of the victims' names. And part of that has to do with the way China really censors their dissemination of information. Uh, We only know the name of one survivor uh, named Zhang Lai. His MO, uh, now Yang's MO, was to lure young boys from like internet cafes and coffee shops to his home where he strangled and tortured them in this wild ass contraption, which we'll get into later. Um, But he was born in 1974, arrested November 2003, and he was executed just six weeks later. Yeah, pretty quick. Yeah, very quick. So now we're going to dive into the set Take us there, Beth. So the setting is Pingyu County in central China, Henan province. 
Henan is China's third most populous province with a population of approximately 94 million. Henan is also one of the world's most populous subnational entities. And if it were a country by itself, Henan would be one of the most populous countries in the world, mm. more populous even than Germany, France, or Spain. Wow. Yeah. That gives us an idea. Uh, between 1978 and 2015, China moved from a poor, underdeveloped country to the world's leading emerging economy. Uh, they're on our heels, y'all. Uh, a paper published by the London School of Economics Business Review estimates that the share of national income earned by the top 10% of the population in China has increased from 27% in 1978 and 41% in 2015. While the share earned by the bottom 50% has dropped from 27% to 15%. In other words, the level of inequity in China in the late 1970s used to be less than the European average, closer to the egalitarian Nordic countries, but are now approaching a level that is comparable with the United States. Let that percolate in your brain for a while. Mm, yeah. Um, as somebody who's not in the top 1%, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Henan is considered to be one of the less developed areas in China economically. The population is very homogenous, with approximately 99% of the population being Han, an East Asian ethnic group historically native to the Yellow River Basin region of modern China. One article I read said that typically when you think of Chinese people and their culture, you probably are thinking of Han people. Other than Jewish people, Han people have the longest unbroken written history that is 3,000 years old. But mm. small populations of minority groups such as the Mongols and the Manchus do exist in scattered rural communities as well as in the major urban centers in Henan. Henan province has one of the most unbalanced gender ratios in China. As a result... The Chinese government's one-child policy, which began in the 70s, in the year 2000, the gender ratio was approximately 118 males for 100 females, considerably higher than the normal ratio, which is approximately 105 males for 100 females. This is due to fetal gender selection or abortion when a fetus is found to be female, since culturally male children are preferred and since couples were only allowed to have one child, they wanted that child to be male. Mm. As a result, in 2006, Henan province banned fetal gender selection by abortion. Those who violated the laws faced fines of 10,000 to 30,000 yen. That's $1,250 to $3,750 US. At least five times the yearly average wow. income of yeah, of a local family. In addition, daughter-only families receive an annual allowance from the government. Despite these efforts, the problem did not get better. Based on a 2009 British Medical Journal study, the ratio was over 140 boys for every 100 girls in the 1 to 4 age group. Although the numbers may be skewed, as children born outside of the state plan aren't allowed to have their HUCO, a government registration which is needed to access some benefits. Although the 
the number of these children is not known. Estimates have ranged from the hundreds of thousands to several million. These children have faced hardships in obtaining education and employment. Other unintended consequences of the one-child policy were increases in the number of female children who were placed in orphanages or were simply abandoned, and even Mm. infanticide of baby girls. Oh my God. And tens of thousands of Chinese girls were adopted by families in the United States and other countries. Wow. In 2018, out of China's population of 1.4 billion, there were nearly 34 million more males than females, the equivalent of almost the entire population of California or Poland, who will never find wives. The imbalance also empowered single women to reject men without money, leaving a generation of single men called bare branches because they couldn't add to their family trees. And whole industries have been created to cater to single males. Pretty young women live stream their daily lives, earning six-figure salaries through online gifts from male fans. Sun Xiaoteng, 21, earns up to $11,700 a month from her 50,000 followers. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) According to Sun, streaming stars are like movie stars, but more reachable. They interact Mm. with fans and comfort lonely hearts to satisfy the need for company. And to be clear, they're just live streaming their daily lives. They're not really doing anything sexual or anything like that. But still very um, lucrative business to be in. Yes, Um, yes. Smart. My ears are very perked (laughs) right now. Uh, I'm wondering how I can get get to China. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, how I can... Get a hand in that. Uh, In 2016, China implemented a two-child policy, and families were allowed to have a second child. After an initial 8% bump in births, the number fell to 3.5% the following year. And in August of 2018, a draft civil code was published omitting any reference to quote-unquote family planning, and an official told attendees at the United Nations conference that China wouldn't set population limits in the future. In fact, officials are now trying to stimulate a baby boom as their population is getting older. By 2050, 330 million Chinese will be over age 65, and the ratio Mm. of young to old will be dramatically imbalanced. The shrinking population means fewer young taxpayers are available to prop up the older generation that is living for an unprecedentedly long time. Man, isn't it interesting how people just don't see the long game? Yeah. Um, in, in China, children are most people's retirement plan, as culturally they are expected to provide for their parents in old age. According to a 2013 study by Peking University, only 3% of respondents had a commercial pension and 0.2% a private occupational pension issued by a private employer. There is intense pressure on children to do well, to have successful careers, so that they will then have the means later to support four grandparents and two parents, an upside-down pyramid Mm. known as 421 in China. That's insane. Um, Chinese, that's a, that's a pyramid destined to fall. Oh, yeah, that's uh, going to tip. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chinese propaganda now encourages couples to have children for the country. Women are discouraged from delaying marriage for a career with the de- derisive label Shenggu or, quote, leftover women, end quote. 
given to unmarried women over 27. Abortions, once widely available, are now beginning to be controlled. In August 2018, an idea was proposed to have adults with fewer than two children pay into a procreation fund to subsidize larger families. The Chinese government wants women back in the home having babies, and women are increasingly being discriminated against in the workplace. Mm. China's leader Xi Jinping has been pushing traditional gender roles, and increasingly, women are being pushed back into the home, and their claims to property and divorce proceedings have been weakened. Mm. That's really scary. Not good. Xi Jinping has basically made his reign as president... Um, he can lead as long as he wants, yeah. is my understanding. Um, so yikes. Uh, according to a survey by employment website, 51job.com, three quarters of Chinese companies felt less inclined to hire women following the move to the two child policy. This is a generation of women who will be, who will be spending a big chunk of their lives caring for others, says Teresa Hesketh, professor of global health at University College in London. But registrations for marriage in China have declined annually since 2013, and the numbers of divorces has climbed every year since 2006. A rising section of China's middle class no longer sees marriage as the only path to security and are choosing to forego a traditional family life and prioritizing careers. Marriage and children are becoming less significant in young people's lives, says Professor Gu Baocheng, a demographer at Beijing's Renmin University. Their mindset is totally different. And um, coronavirus. <laughs> uh, after their um, their quarantines in Wuhan, divorces like shot through the roof. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, so. Anyway, singles have begun to relish their freedom. On November 11th, China celebrates Singles Day, chosen as the date's decimal for 11-11. Looks like solitary figures as a refractory remedy to Valentine's Day to celebrate single singledom, Galentine's Day, and... Uh, <laughs> curb some of the commonly associated negativity. It's now the biggest shopping day in the world, clocking up to 30.8 billion in sales in 2018. Treat yourself. Treat yourself. (laughs) I love that drop. Treat yourself. (laughs) Uh, Single Chinese women have also started to reclaim the term leftover, quote unquote, as a mark of defiance. I love it. Speaking of leftovers, here's a side note. People typically associate Chinese food with rice, but there's actually a north-south divide in terms of rice versus noodles, with noodle dishes Mm. being preferred in the north and rice-based dishes being preferred in the south. And you'll find out why we mention this later on in the episode. Ooh. Although historically, the Chinese don't seem to have had a problem with homosexuality once exposed to Western culture. They did. Uh, You see what colonization (laughs) does to people? Uh, Homosexuality was labeled as mental as a mental illness banned in China throughout the 20th century until 1997. These days, the Chinese government now does not forbid it, but they also don't really approve it. For example, the Chinese government for, forbids gay movies to be shown on TV or in theaters because they are deemed, quote, inappropriate, end quote. Gay bars and the like are still sometimes subject to police harassment. 
being gay is particularly difficult in the countryside, and the vast majority of people in China live in the countryside. These folks often do not even speak of homosexuality, and when they do, even though it has been removed from the official list of mental illnesses in China, it is usually considered a disease. That is uh, unfortunate, Um, and we will get into it more in the story, but let's get into Wen Yang's early life. So as we've mentioned in previous episodes in China, the surname of a person is spoken first, then their given name. So when Yang's first name is Yang. Yang was born on November 18th, 1974. While growing up in rural China in the late 1970s and 80s, Yang is said to have idolized killers who would often write school papers on wanting to be an assassin. Reports of his early life talked about how he enjoyed watching films about murder and hitmen, but the boy's family and his teachers did not take this seriously. The adults assumed that the little boy didn't actually want to kill anyone. They thought he just really liked the idea of all the action and adventure. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't love a good um, action flick, yeah, right? Yeah. So adults assumed Yang was just going through a phase and that he would grow out of it, grow up and get a normal job. However, that never happened. And his obsession with killing and murderers never went away. In fact, as he got older, the obsession only got worse. He thought becoming a professional killer would be a, quote, ideal job, end quote. And I got to say, <laughs> I'll get into this later. I've thought the same thing, but those jobs are posted on Indeed or Monster.com. Young joined the PLA or uh, the People's Liberation Army, which is the Chinese army, and later became Hmm. a migrant worker. He then ended up alone in his parents' home on the outskirts of a village in Pingyu County. And the name of the village I've seen reported as Zhang Zhuang Village or Dawang Zhuang village, and we're not really sure what the name is. Um, I think I've seen it more often as Dawang Zhuang village, but I don't really know. So sorry about that. Hey, we tried. Yeah. Uh, but the village had several internet cafes and arcades. While most Henan youths headed east to find work, Yang reportedly stayed behind in the village while his parents worked in the city and sent home money. Although one article referred to Yang as the, quote, son of a pig farmer, end quote. So who knows? It's China and don't fact check us, okay? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get this information. Um, yeah. We're reading in English and a lot of the English articles are taken from Chinese articles and I think there's some translation Mm -hmm. issues, so... We do the best we can. Translation issues and then also issues with censorship. I don't think that's a secret in in China. Yes, that too. I forgot about that part. Yeah. So they're not (laughs) willy-nilly sharing information about serial killers and their victims and, you know, their sexual exploits, et cetera, et cetera. So. Exactly. Yep. um, So that's why we don't know more. (laughs) So now we're going to dive into the timeline. 
What do you got, Beth? In 2001, Huang began his search for his first victim. Huang decided that the internet cafes and video game arcades in the village were the perfect places to find his victims, and he began to hang out in those areas. One source said that while mainstream press didn't report on this, message boards suggested that he was also cruising at these cafes at and that many of his victims may have been lured either to participate in survival sex or a romantic encounter. Mm, we talked about survival sex pretty recently, yeah. but cruising <laughs> on, on a, a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. afternoon. <laughs> um, sorry, I don't have more for you. Uh, in a shed behind his home, he had set up a device that he called the, quote, intelligent wooden horse, end quote, or a, quote, smart Trojan, end quote, depending on the translation, which was a modified table that Huang had built out of a stand used for making noodles. noodles. It looked, yes, noodles. <laughs> <the> noodles. <laughs> uh, there we go. What'd you say? Noodles were north and rice, rice is south? Rice south, yep. Okay. It looked like a four-legged stool with a rectangle wooden board fixed to it. A lot of articles called it a noodle machine, but it was basically just a table. Yeah. Some articles said that he put his victims through a noodle machine. <laughs> he didn't yeah. do that. <laughs> no, no, no. He he, he didn't. Uh, it does make for an interesting read, yes, though. Yes, it does. I was like, what? <laughs> he Wait a minute. What? <laughs> Scroll back, scroll back. <laughs> in September of 2001, Huang cozied up to a boy at an internet cafe and started up a conversation. Somehow he convinced the boy to come back to his home. Once there, he brought the boy to the shed where he strapped him to the table, raped him, and then strangled him to death. Once the boy was dead, Huang buried him on his property. The only thing he kept from the victim was his belt. Oh, I forgot to mention, in his M.O., he kept belts as souvenirs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. After the first murder, Huang was thrilled that he had finally been able to do the one thing that he wanted to do his entire life, murder someone. And <laughs> it wasn't long. Yeah. <laughs> Wee! Uh, I'm a murderer. Wee! Uh, <laughs> and... <laughs> Remember that scene in Hamilton? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm laughing so hard. I know. I'm going to click my oh best my laugh God. counter. <laughs> no, every time I watch that part, I'm And it wasn't long before he felt the urge to kill again. So Huang went back to... Sorry. <laughs> it's okay i love it i love hearing you laugh <laughs> so huang went back to the gaming arcades and internet cafes where boys and young men spent hours at a time playing games huang developed a system for choosing his victims after watching the young men for a while he would pick a target he would then start a conversation and get the victim to leave with him by promising to improve his studies help him with video game skills help him find a job or just offer an nice dinner. And so some of these boys that were hanging out were kind of vagrants. They, uh, I read that these places uh, stayed open 24 hours. So sometimes mm -hmm. uh, some of these guys would stay there to sleep 
and uh, mm. some of them had showers. So it was more than just like what we think of as like a internet cafe or video game arcade. Um, it was a, a big sure. hangout. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what vagrancy laws are like in China. Like um, <clears throat> a lot of are um quote unquote vagrants i don't like the word but yeah um, what, what people other who are un who are unhoused, unhoused okay uh don't have secure housing um hang out at bus stops because you can't get a ticket for oh, loitering right, if right. you're hanging out bus at, a, at a bus stop yeah right yeah and there, i always if wondered no... why they did that because yeah <laughs> i used to take <laughs> i used to take the bus to work from from their light yeah. rail station and there would always uh-huh. be people hanging out at the bus stop always yeah yeah no and i used to take the bus too to work we work at the same place uh and there would always be people sleeping yeah um, sleeping or, and, or you sometimes know, they'd be three or four of them sitting around drinking <laughs> yeah and yeah i mean again it's it's i i'm not familiar with what the laws are in china but um people just need a place to go where they're not going to get hassled by the police right, right. and um, be safe and enough, yeah. safe enough. And these sounds like these internet cafes were that place. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of these guys were pretty vulnerable, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once they arrived back at Wang's house, he would offer them something to drink, which was drugged, of course. And Wang would use other methods too, like getting them drunk or just physically beating them to render them unconscious. Then Wang would drag them into a shed behind his home, strap them to the modified noodle table and rape them. Once he was finished, he strangled his victims to death. Afterwards, he stripped off their clothes, sometimes cutting the bodies into several parts. Whoa. Some reports said that he hid them in a pit in his home. Others said that he buried them underneath the home. And uh, it might even mean the same thing. Sometimes things get lost in translation, but in any case, he buried the bodies. <laughs> yeah, on his property. property. Yes. Uh, in the months that followed Wang's first kill, teenagers from the village began vanishing without a trace. Over the next three years, 18 teenage boys from Pinyu County went missing, some only a few days apart, and all from internet cafes and video arcades located near schools. Many of the teenagers were from poor farming families. Some of them had been placed in boarding schools because the villages where they lived lacked high schools. Their parents were migrant workers working in cities where schools charge higher fees to out-of-town children. The boarding schools failed to alert parents when the children stopped coming to class. Wang Liu Chao, one of the parents, said that school officials did not inform Wang when his son went missing and they refused to accept any responsibility. It was estimated that Huang raped and murdered around 20 teenage boys in the shed. Once he was finished with his victims, like we said, he would bury them on the property. But sometimes he just left victims to rot in the shed. Like his first mm. victim, Huang kept the rest of the victim's belts if they were wearing one. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, this can't go on too long oh. if he's not disposing <laughs> of the bodies properly, right? <laughs> so now we're going to dive into the investigation and the arrest. So it wasn't long before people in the village started to notice the teenage boys were going missing and took their concerns to the police. But the police assured them that the village was perfectly safe. Nothing to see here, guys. Nothing to worry about. That the missing boys were just vagrants who had moved on rather than 
and looking into the reports of missing boys, the police spent their time assuring citizens that everything was just fine. Meanwhile, Wang was getting out of control. He was getting increasingly vicious and started started taking bigger risks. At one point, Wang left two severed hands from his victims on the doorstep of an internet cafe. Come again? Yeah. He took a couple of hands and left them on the doorstep of the internet oh cafe where he often went and had found at least three of his victims. The hands had notes attached, which local sources said was the killer trying to leave a tip for police. So he's kind of teasing the police at this point. Santa Maria. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Woo, brazen. Yeah. Uh <clears throat> then local children started to go missing. Yeah, and that's the other really fucked up part about it, is that these are these are young boys and kids. Yeah. Um, which is uh tragic. Tragic. Um boys with parents who reported them missing when they didn't come home after school. In one case, when a boy's parents realized that he was missing, they went to the local police station. But there, they were reportedly told, without a body, we don't have a case. But you can still investigate yeah, a crime, still motherfuckers. for him. <laughs> yeah. When the police failed to do anything, the parents of the missing boys traveled to Zhengzhou, the capital of the province. They hoped that by telling officials in the capital what was going on, that authorities would have to do something. Mm. One would think, despite the desperate parents' pleas to find their sons, the police still didn't do much to get the, to the bottom of the vanishing teenagers. It wasn't until sixteen year old a 16-year-old boy named Zhang Lei went to police that the case was taken more seriously. According to Lei, Huang first approached him and told him that he had developed a new game called, quote, God Riding a Wooden Horse. Mm. Huang asked Lei if he would go test it out, and he agreed. Once back at the house, Huang told Lei the game was played by being tied to a table and counting to a thousand. Um, you want me to do what now? <laughs> yeah, that, that, uh, that don't sound right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, the last thing Lei remembers was that Wang started choking him with a rope. At some point, Lei woke up and Wang was raping him. He passed out again. But Lei would wake up two more times during the assault. Wang would splash water on the boy's face to re- revive him. So it's, it sounds like he's fucking with him, like playing yeah, with him. Yeah. Um, during the next four days of torture, Wang fed Lei instant noodles to keep him alive. And Lei tried escaping twice, but failed. Each time he was awake, Lei would talk to Huang and talk him out of killing him. For four mm. days, he kept Huang at bay, often having to listen to Wang arguing with himself about whether or not he should kill him, saying, kill? Don't kill? Huang also told him, I killed at least 25 people. You're number 26. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, operation paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.
Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. No, I'm <laughs> taking off my headphones, leaving now. Bye. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. That is terrifying. Um, but shout out to Lei. Yeah. So during one conversation, Lei promised to take care of Wang when he was older. He promised to become his adopted son and to support him for the rest of his life. At this point, Wang released him and Lei broke free from the shed and ran for his fucking life. Shout out to you. Yeah. Local police from the village knew Lei as a troublemaker. So when they first heard that Lei was claiming to have been abducted and attacked by a serial killer, they didn't believe him. The police were sure that he was just making it all up for attention. Those police don't like fucktards. These police really (laughs) are messy ass hoes in that they really don't want to do their jobs. I mean, I mean, really? Uh, And again, that might be another reason why we don't know a ton about this story right. is because these are law enforcement, right? Arms of the of the Chinese government. government. Yeah. And so it makes That's them embarrassing. It doesn't make them yeah, yeah, it's embarrassing, right? Um, but the doctors discovered multiple needle wounds on Lee's stomach, which indicated that he had been drugged. At that point, the police finally started taking Lay seriously and they raided Wang's home. There, they found a boatload of evidence. A whole heap. Yeah. Not only did they find Wang's trophy collection of his victim's belts, but the shed with the table. And the shed, Mm -hmm. as we mentioned before, wasn't just used for torture and murder. Wang also used it as storage for the bodies of some of those that he killed. And many of the bodies were still bound up in the shed. Can you imagine the police like, oh, Oh my gosh, like, they oh, were, he was right. Holy oh, whoopsies. shit. <laughs> whoopsies, guys. How are we going to cover this? Yeah. Up? Okay, let's get our story straight. Um, <laughs> so the smell was overwhelming and caused even hardened officers to feel ill. According to the police, the table that Wang used to rape and murder his victims was covered in feces and semen, and police finally arrested Wang on November 12th, 2003. There were reports that 23 corpses were found on the grounds, including seven bodies buried underneath his bed. Oh my God. State media reported that there were 25 victims, but a police officer in Jumadian City's Pinyu County told the global news agency AFP that the number was actually 17. So who knows? (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, it's hard to know exactly who to believe or what to believe. Right. But, but there were it was there a, was lot. a lot. Yeah. yeah. And under his bed. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine the smell. An interview with China Central Television, Wang, oh, he did an interview. Mm-hmm. Wang said that he had wanted to be a professional killer from early childhood. Again, Wendy, same, but again, you can't find those jobs on Indeed. It was violent and bloody video shows and games that pushed him to act as a warrior in real life, he said. He also said that his purpose for the murders was for nothing but just the thrill of killing. And that's all, folks. Uh, <laughs> So now we're going to get into the trial. Hit it, Beth. Over 1,000 people were issued passes to attend the trial, including the families of the victims and more than 100 journalists who traveled from around the country to cover the case. Huang confessed to his crimes and his lawyers lodged no appeals after his more than three-hour trial held in the People's Court of Pingyu County. Just a three-hour trial. And it's also interesting that um, media from other parts of the world were not allowed to come in. And I've heard stories about, again, China is really tight-lipped about what they let come out. And even um, like NPR, New York Times journalists, shout out to New York Times, (laughs) who, um, (laughs) who do work in China, like they've talked about how like they'll come home from just being at the grocery store and the police are in their house oh my like God. just to fuck with you just just so they know just so you know that they can do that yeah, shit like please. and then they just leave and and that's it uh, you don't no, say anything you. about it yeah i mean so <laughs> uh so again a hundred journalists seems like and a thousand people only from china seems Interesting to me. Um, Most of the victim's family members were present at the proceedings. Many were enraged and some family members began screaming names and curses at Wang as soon as he was brought into the courtroom at 835, which caused the trial to be suspended for about 10 minutes. Lu Ningbo, father of Wang's first victim, said Wang Yang is a tumor in society. Even handing down the death sentence will not appease family members. Loudspeakers were installed outside of the courtroom to enable the more than 2,000 residents who gathered nearby to follow the trial, which had to be stopped several times to allow many of the victim's parents to calm down. Mm. Throughout the trial, Huang turned his back on the attendees and answered the judges in a soft voice. Mm. That's interesting how his demeanor changed when faced with his crimes and justice. Um, during his trial, Wang not only showed no remorse for his actions, but he spoke out saying that he was happy that he got to live out his dream. Oh, my God. Not necessary, bro. Read the room. Uh, Wang, <laughs> Wang told the court he did not pick female victims because it would make him less of a quote unquote hero. Okay. And older men were too vigilant, he added. During the trial, the victim's families criticized the police for failing to act faster, not taking the disappearances seriously, and not stopping Huang earlier. They argued that if the police had investigated properly, they could have ended Huang's spree sooner and saved many lives. Some victims' family members attempted to attack Wang mm. when he was taken out of the courtroom, but were stopped by court bailiffs. 
okay, everybody, calm down. We have to make this look like a real <laughs> trial, like real justice is being carried out. So just everybody simmer down. Um, so now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, Due to the fallout, many senior police officials were let go, and an investigation was launched into how this could have been mishandled so badly. Five police officers in the county, including the county's police chief, were removed from their posts because of their negligence. The police and media blamed video games for the murders, claiming the internet cafes were the problem, <laughs> and police turned their focus to shutting down the cafes. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. <laughs> miss, miss fire again guys <laughs> and i forgot to mention that Wang yang was sentenced to death after his trial mm. so he was mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he was also mm -hmm. executed by a single gunshot to the head on december 26 2003 he was 29 years old he had only admitted to the murders of the young men whose bodies or body parts were found in his inner and around his home, but over 40 boys had been reported as missing in the area between 2001 and 2003. Wow. Not long after the execution, two more bodies were dug up by reporters and a forensic expert after police failed to investigate reports that there were probably more victims. Still According more fuckery. Yeah, still more. It's like that clown, that clown, clown car that you it keeps it, like clowns keep coming out or the the cloth that they the Pull rainbow cloth you just sleeve, keep pulling yeah. and pulling and there's just more um except these are real people yeah. and it is not as funny uh it's not the funny two at all actually no, it's not funny at all uh yeah okay i take that back it's not funny <laughs> According to police, the two bodies matched his other victims, bringing his kill count to a possible 20. The revelation raised more doubts about the police investigation and renewed criticism of the local government. So, oh boy, oh boy, now we're going to get into what we think made Wang Yang snap as well as our takeaways. So I think that Wang Yang always had this in him. Um, again, I've wondered how one becomes an assassin. Um, I applied for jobs to the FBI and CIA when I was graduated from college. Uh, I've looked for jobs like this on Indeed or ZipRecruiter. They're not there. <laughs> um, but I have thought um, just, you know, what it would take to start um, having a career as an assassin. Anybody watch Killing Eve out there? Yeah. yeah I mean, it great. looks so glamorous. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd be dead immediately. So I don't think it's a good career for me. <laughs> oh, Beth, we could be, we could team up. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't believe that media causes people to become violent or murder. I think that maybe it can help reinforce it, right? Like, um, you know, uh, gosh, I hate to keep shouting out United Shades of America, but they talk about how young people are just flooded with overwhelming amounts of images of hate. And you look at um, PewDiePie, like he's the number one or number two YouTuber in the world. Um, and he's been shouted out in numerous manifestos of white supremacists across the world in maybe the last three years. Um, and as Beth has said, not everyone who consumes media becomes that which they consume. Um, also, at some point in the story, I think um, Beth mentioned it, Wang was saying, kill, don't kill, kill, yeah. don't kill, over and over again. <laughs> and um I don't know how much this plays into it, but he was 
the generation of this one child policy in in Chinese society. Um, and there's this whole generation of people who they were only children and their lives were compared to their parents much better. And their parents essentially poured everything they had, whether it be very little or, or great means into the children that they had. And so I kind of sensed like a sense of entitlement yeah. in him in my take of the story. I also sensed understandably from the way society painted homosexuality that a fear and maybe a hatred for what he was as a, as a gay man. And perhaps he was trying to kill an element of himself in his victims. Um, also his victims were young, vulnerable boys. And that's the thing I hate the most about serial killers is how much they prey on the vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I got. What do you got? Um, well, I agree with you on all your points. Um, and I, I think that the one-child policy really fucked up a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, <laughs> only children are a little bit spoiled. <laughs> a little bit? Jesus Christ, tell it to my cousin Felix. Uh, I have 70 first cousins. Wow. And Felix is the only, only, only child. child. And it's like, man, he got another Sega Genesis, another bike. Yeah, they're a little bit man. spoiled. <laughs> but compounded by that in China is the pressure that is put on children to do well, especially the males, so that they can marry and take care of their parents as they get older. Um, and in this case, it seems that Huang was gay which is not really socially acceptable in China, especially in rural areas where he lived. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Huang was probably under a lot of pressure, um, uh, you know, having issues with his sexuality. Um, he didn't even admit, I mean, he admitted to the crimes, but mm -hmm. he never admitted to being gay. He said that mm -hmm. he chose boys because he wanted to be a hero. That doesn't even make sense. But, um, you know. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Still scratching my head. So he, he, he couldn't even admit to being gay. Um, mm -hmm. So he obviously had a lot of uh, issues going on. And suffice it to say, he fell short of society's and his parents' expectations. <laughs> mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like yeah. he had a job and he was still living off of his parents. It's mm -hmm. possible that he had antisocial personality disorder. Um, I mean, he never expressed regret for what he did and he was happy that he was able to murder people. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's very possible that he was a psychopath. Ooh. And this story was also... OG True Crime comes through every time. <laughs> this story was also very reminiscent of the Chinese serial killer Zhang Yongming, who we covered last year in episode 65. Oh, that yes. was also a situation where young men and boys started going missing and the police did nothing. And mm. it may be well be that in rural China, when boys go missing, if they are suspected of being gay or of being sex workers, the police just don't care. Mm. In this um, society where the value of a male child's life has such value, yeah. that seems so Strange. counter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
I agree. Um, Another thing that I kind of picked up on these articles was um, like they were talking about how uh, some of these kids were vagrants or people who were Um, unhoused unhoused or with insecure housing. People with insecure housing. Um, I think maybe the police had kind of a disgust for these boys. Um, mm-hmm. Like they were throwing away their their chance or whatever. I'm not really sure. Yeah, but it, yeah. It, there was just some kind of an attitude. Uh, like they were disposable. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. not really sure exactly why culturally, because we don't know enough about the mm-hmm. culture, but there's something there. Yeah. But this case also reminds me in, in some ways of Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, do tell. Well, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer was gay. He also Mm -hmm. lured young men and boys to his house Mm -hmm. um, and would drug them and Mm -hmm. uh, kill them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how charming Wang was. Like, he looked like he was pretty handsome. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if he was also charming, like apparently Jeffrey Dahmer was. Because Jeffrey Dahmer was able to talk his way out of a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I guess, I mean, he did do a TV interview, but I couldn't find a clip of it. No, no. I don't think Um, we'd ever be able to see that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's a a very good question. Look at the OG true crime. Of, Just lots of, of questions with this OG. one. Not a lot of answers. So sorry about that, guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's for you, guys. <laughs> Why, thank uh, you. Yeah, you're welcome. You deserve it. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series. And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story. 
conning the con. So now we're going to get into uh, how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beth on the synthesizers. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Sounds like you've got some doozies, Beth. Hit us. Yeah, I just thought because there were children in this episode that I would offer up some safety tips for children. Awesome. So here we go. Number one, do not open doors for strangers. Instruct your kids to keep the doors locked and secure at all times and to only open the door for familiar faces. Fire. Number two, be familiar with the family emergency contact list. Every household should have an emergency contact list neatly written out or printed and kept somewhere central. This way, if a disaster strikes, family members can easily refer to it and contact others if needed let your children know where they can find this list and how to use it that's good <laughs> thank you <You're> welcome <laughs> number three know the family escape plan make a plan and discuss the potential escape routes and what to do should a disaster take place Number four, be able to use the security system. If your home is equipped with a security system, explain to your kids the importance of keeping security system information confidential. For example, a key code should not be shared with anyone else outside the family. Show your kids how to arm and disarm the alarm system and especially locate and activate any panic buttons. Good to know. Mm. Fire. Number five, set boundaries and curfews. Set boundaries on how far out your children can go. It's best to keep those boundaries within sight or at most within earshot. Curfews should be set as well. So if an older child who's allowed to explore a little bit further isn't back by a certain time, then parents know that they should go search for him or her. Mm. Number six, they should know their full name, home phone number, and address. Have your kids memorize the basic contact details, but also let your children know that personal information should stay personal and should not be shared with strangers unless it's an absolute emergency situation. Now, that is a good one. Yeah. Because how many of us are remembering phone numbers these days? Not often. So it's hard yeah. to teach another little person to do. see you've raised kids before mm -hmm. i'm still going through it and boy oh boy i got some things to cross <laughs> off my list <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the next one is don't ingest anything from a stranger teach your children to politely refuse any kind of food given to them by strangers even if mm. it looks really really good don't do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next one is no one should touch your body. As soon as your ch children are old enough to comprehend the basics, it's important to teach them that no one except their parents and a doctor is allowed to touch them. Teach them the difference between good touch and bad touch. Also, let them know that they can scream for help and alert those around them if they feel violated in any way. It's okay. Go ahead and scream. Yeah. 
Okay. Next one, never go anywhere with a stranger. Prepare your children for dangerous and high-pressure scenarios, like someone saying, your mom told me to ask you to come with me, or other scenarios. Mm, remember having a code word? Yes, yes. We did have one, too. Yeah. The last one is teach your children to trust their gut. Teach your kids that if their gut tells them no, they should listen to it. As long as they feel uncomfortable, they should never feel pressured to do something, no matter how many other people are doing it. Just don't. <laughs> Just say no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> uh, fancy Reagan in the I have talked about my issues with that, but I mean, seriously, that's a really good one. And that just something I just started telling my kids. Yeah. Like, if trust yourself. You feel you uncomfortable. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. None of this has to be something that you sit down with your kids and have a serious conversation about. You can just make it part of your everyday conversation, like play a game of what would you do if or quick, mm-hmm. what's our phone number? You'll probably need to reiterate all of these things a lot anyway to get it through mm-hmm. their heads. So just make it part right. of your day to talk about these things. Beth, you just <laughs> had me on the floor. Do you know what a death drop is? <laughs> I just feel like you just did a death drop of like safety tips for for children for our children. Like I'm probably gonna print out this episode Sweet. script. Well, and I'm use glad it's it helpful for my kids. Thank you so You're welcome. much. Um so Oh, I'm just, whew, you sent me. Uh, so now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out basically any content by people of color, any marginalized groups or any true crime goodies. So I just want to shout out the podcast, California Love. It's uh, so good. <clears throat> basically, Tupac and Dr. Dre's California Love served as a love letter and anthem for an entire generation. The song inspired author New York and uh, the New York Times writer. It's in New York Times a lot this episode. <clears throat> His name is Walter Thompson Hernandez. He's half black, half Mexican. He's a man. Uh, he created a show as prescient as uh, as it is personal. In his California Love Summer series, Walter invites listeners to join him and his family home on horseback through the streets of Compton. Yes. Wow. People ride horsebacks in Compton. Compton. There are black cowboys in Compton. And up in the sky to examine belonging, um, Walter takes us on a deep into his own story as he explores what it means to love Los Angeles. It's fantastic. There's really good. It's obviously it's New York time. So it's like super produced. So you like hear when he's in the cop car, you hear, um, you know, his mom talking. It's just, it really takes you. It's like for your ears. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So my shout out is, and I think I've shouted this podcast out before, but here I go again. Uh, The Mm. podcast Decoder Ring. It's a slate podcast and the description is host Willa Paskin takes a cultural question, object or habit, examines its history and tries to figure out what it means and why it matters. And it's a really Mm. good podcast, really interesting. And Connie Mm -hmm. in our Facebook group brought to our attention that a recent episode covers the term Karen and how it came to be. The episode is called The Karen. So give it a listen. It's really good. Yeah, you're going to love it. (laughs) (laughs) Color me subscribed. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Uh, So 
Well, Beth, that's it for today. Where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash app, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's all true. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network.